everybody. Welcome to The Yard Sign, the most important and relevant podcast in politics from whenever, wherever you may be watching. We appreciate you for doing so. Uh, thank you. We got a huge uh, show ready for you guys, including a special guest. We have congressional candidate Amanda Mackey, who's going to be running against Charlie Crist in November. We're going to talk about her race and, of course, the state of things in D.C. and how that all connects to the Tampa Bay area and Florida at large. We're also going to talk about plans to reopen Florida. Of course, uh, Governor DeSantis's plans and what's happening locally, and in addition to the national and local sentiments about COVID-19 and the coronavirus, and we'll wrap it up today with Joe Biden's Me Too interview, and uh, could this be the beginning of the end of his nomination to the Democratic Party? Uh, let's get things started with our guest today. Uh, before we introduce Amanda, let's go to this clip real quick from OAN, where she talks about our current congressman over in Pinellas County, Charlie Crist. Yes. He is succeeding, and they don't want to give him success. They don't. And that's why they're in, engaging in this battle right now. If that's not politics, I don't know what is. The man Mackey wants to replace, Congressman Charlie Crist, has been the governor of Florida, as well as the state's attorney general and education commissioner. In 2010, he lost the Republican Senate primary to Marco Rubio. And in 2012, he endorsed President Barack Obama for re-election and became a Democrat. In 2014, he lost his bid to unseat Governor Rick Scott and two years later won the House seat he now holds. Charlie Chris has been an opportunist all his life. He is a creature of the Tallahassee Swamp and the Washington, D.C. Swamp. He has been campaigning since I was nine years old. He has been in office for nearly three decades, and he doesn't have one single accomplishment. At the end of the third quarter, Mackey raised $420,000, which far outpaces the other four Republicans running for the nomination. Two of them have negative cash balances, and Mackey's $400,000 on hand is four times the combined on-hand balance of the other two. All right, and joining us now, Amanda Mackey. How you doing, Amanda? Thank you so much for coming on the Yard Sign. Thank you so much. Doing well. How's everyone doing over there? I think we're all doing good. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all ready to come out of quarantine, so hopefully you are too. I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda, you've been putting up uh, fantastic fundraising numbers. The NRCC has taken notice. A lot of people don't really understand the complexities of this process, um, you know, but again, they don't really get involved or really start to take notice. Once you've reached certain benchmarks, give us an update of where the campaign currently stands. Uh, thank you. I will. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity. I think it's great for people to really understand just how um, challenging it is to run um, you know, run in any level of office, but um, on the federal level, there are enormous pressures when it comes to fundraising, and the pressures are even more pronounced when you're running against someone like Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist has been around for a long time. I always like to say he's been campaigning since I was nine years old. I'm 41. Um, He's been campaigning for three decades, and you know, there isn't a brick and a sidewalk named after him because he's never really done anything, but his name is out there, and people associate him with being the governor and whatever else they do. He still does have a following, and that's why he's sitting on a huge war chest of over $2.8 million. So all the fundraising that you have to do is really important to be able to you know, get, catch up to someone who has been sitting on, on uh, his, um, his war chest. And he, you know, obviously is the, in 2018, when he ran, he didn't really have um, much in the way of an opponent. And so he was able to, you know, store a lot of that. 
Um, we've raised uh, nearly $750,000 in less than a year. Um, and for the, those who don't know the federal limits, you can only get $5,600 from one individual. So it's not like someone can write you a, you know, a, a check for twenty dollars or $30,000. The, the limit is that. And so we've been able to raise um, almost $750,000. Uh, we have our cash on hand, which really shows the, um, the viability, I think, of a campaign. We have almost 615000 of that cash on hand. So we have done an extremely good job of being diligent with our money. And if you look at other candidates in this race or just other candidates as a whole, um, you'll see their what we call burn rate is significantly higher. Um, and, and that's just a function of you know having to run a scrappy campaign and uh, really just know that you have to save your money to go after Charlie Crist. So, so, so Amanda, can you can you back up just a little bit for everybody that's watching and kind of um, explain a little bit more about uh, the, the current situation in the race, right? Because you guys have a primary, um, you know, talk about a little bit about your primary opponents. I know uh, one of them is Anna Paulina Luna. She's been on our show before. Um, we had a good conversation with her months ago. And I guess talk a little bit about the primary process, talk about your district a little bit, and then maybe talk a little bit about your, your platform in general and what you're running on. Sure, be happy to. Um, so as of last week, when qualifying occurs, and qualifying is when you – uh, pay 10, 000, over $10,000 to get on the ballot. So um, last week, we knew the universe of people that are going to be running in this district in the Republican primary and in the Democrat primary. So the Democrat, there will only be Charlie Crist. He does not have an opponent in his primary. Um, on the Republican side, there will be five people, and there's also actually a write-in candidate, and that's left for the election, the general election. So on August 18th, there will be a primary race. And in, in Florida, it is a closed primary. Therefore, only Republicans can vote in the Republican primary. And so you will have five people on the ballot that people can choose from. And so um, that's you know, just the general primary process and how that works. Um, I think ours is unique in that we have uh, four women running uh, on, the, uh, on the Republican ticket and one male. And I think that's... Uh, yeah, that, I think that's a testament to the, the GOP really doing a good job of, of working to get, um, to get more women involved in, in races. And so, uh, you know, I, I, look at, I look at our race and I, I think, you know, with everything that we've been able to achieve and uh, really, you know, we can, we can talk about my background, you know, I think that there's only one candidate that Charlie has gone after. Um, there's only one candidate candidate that the DCCC has gone after, that the state Democrats have gone after, and that's me. Um, and I think that's a, largely a function of, you know, the, the, the candidate that, that Charlie fears going up against the most. And so, you know, like I said, you'll have, you know, um, five people on the, on the primary ballot and, and people have to, you know, be able to have the money to uh, be able to play in a primary. And so that's what we, you know, fully intend to do with, uh, with the reserves that we have and continue to build up in our, in our fundraising. Yeah, Amanda, we're uh, fortunate. We live throughout the Tampa Bay area here, you know, but uh, one of our panelists today, uh, well, regular on our show, Chris, is actually one of the constituents of the very district you're running for. Chris, um, you know, again, you being there watching this race as closely as you are, uh, what would be your question for Amanda here? So, the candidates so far, everyone's got uh, a lot of good things to say, but from what I've seen, Amanda, you have the most extensive and, I guess, applicable resume to the job. Uh, how is that going to help you defeat, A, your primary 
your primary uh, opponents and Charlie Chris come November? Sure. Um, so I, I think when you look at my background, and I, if this is the right opportunity, I'd like to tell you about my background. Yeah, I am, absolutely. I, you know, I worked in healthcare starting at the age of 15. Uh, I worked as a file clerk. I worked my way up to being a medical biller. Uh, and then I managed a medical office. So before I ever became a lawyer, worked in government, uh, worked on Capitol Hill, that's what I did. So my background is actually from the healthcare world. Um, when I uh, worked, I worked at the Pentagon. That was my first job after college. I was a political appointee with uh, my background. I was uh, able to you know, work as a political appointee, but then I went on to become a healthcare expert uh, on Capitol Hill. And I worked for uh, various members of Congress advising, but I also helped a lot of constituents with their veterans claims with their Medicare issues. And so that's my background. And I think that is really relevant right now when you look at everything that's happening with COVID and with healthcare in general and healthcare professionals, healthcare workers, liability for healthcare professionals. I think that having someone who has that background as um, someone who's worked in Congress before, who's advised on these issues before, uh, really there's no comparison with any other candidate in this race. Um, and so my background, both in the private sector and government, um, and as well in you know the foreign relations arena, having worked at the Pentagon uh, with my background, I, I am a native Farsi speaker. And so I know that language and I know a lot about foreign relations issues, which I think is also a really important topic right now, given what's happened with uh, COVID really being an emerging threat from China. And I think we have got to be looking at what we are doing and investigating a country like China that, um, that really could be at the, at the pinnacle of why we are in the situation right now. And I think that is something that is really important. But with my resume, again, having you know, served in Congress, I don't, have, I don't need orientation. I was there for about a decade uh, and, I, and I understand the process and I know how to get things done when people need things done. And I think that's really important when your VA claim gets stuck somewhere in the cogwheels of a huge bureaucracy or you know your Medicare issues aren't resolved or a provider that needs help with Medicare. Those are the types of things that, you know again, I don't need orientation on because I did those issues for a decade in Congress. Anita, yeah, I think that will really help you kind of hit the ground running as opposed to having to learn the job to do the job like some of the other candidates might have to do. Exactly. And, and, you know, where I would just separate myself, even from Charlie Crist. I mean, Charlie Crist is a member of Congress, but really, I mean, you know, Chris, you live here. What has Charlie Crist done? And I think that's really the important point. Yeah, exactly. That's the response you usually get. Throw your hands up in the air. Uh, but, but I think that's what's important is that we actually want someone who's a public servant. And to be a public servant, you have to have the heart of a public servant. You have to be willing and able to help people through all their walks of life when they need it. And, you know, you, you never think I'm going to rely on government. And I don't think that way. And most people don't think that way. But right now, with everything that we're going through, the government has come in and said, we're not going to be able to let you open up your business. We're not going to be able to let you do this. And so you do need someone who understands both the private sector as someone who managed a small business, a, a small doctor's office, um, as well as someone who understands government to be able to work those to help people. Because this job, more than any other job in government, I believe, is about helping people. 
you're running in two-year cycles versus a senator who's running in six-year cycles. You have less than two years to really demonstrate how you can perform and help people. We have a great example in Bill Young, who served this district uh, for over 40 years. And, you know, walking in the steps of someone who truly was a public servant is very important to me. You made mention of small businesses and in the current climate and, and disaster really that we're dealing with right now, I wanted to know what your thoughts are of these new businesses, these businesses that are reopening and also what do you plan to do when you get into Congress to help small business owners and that, um, that environment to recover from the last 50 days of not being able to earn anything? Right. So, you know, we are a huge small business district. Um, more than half of our employees that work for businesses work for small businesses in Florida's 13th district. So when you come to uh, Pinellas County, you're not seeing huge restaurant operations. These are largely mom and pop shops, um, ice cream shops, all the things that you, you know, see at the beach. These are not chain restaurants. Um, and so we clearly have uh, a service industry district. We have a lot of restaurants because we do also have the number one beach in America, Clearwater Beach. So, you know, these are the types of businesses that we need to make sure that they survive and thrive. And with everything that's happened with COVID, and understandably so, you know, we, we had to make sure that we stopped what we thought we were on the brink of, which was, you know, calamitous deaths. But also we have to think, just as many you know, deaths as you experience with you know, COVID and, and for everything that you have to go through with, with that, look at what you're doing with the death of an economy too. Look at what you're doing with all the restaurants and all the businesses and the small shops that are closing. Um, and, and we've heard a variety of numbers. You all have heard them, I've heard them, and, and, they, and they range. But you know, a majority of businesses not surviving, a majority of small restaurants not surviving, that is a threat to us as well. And so I think on both the state level and the federal level, you're going to see a lot of, um, a lot of assistance that uh, the, the restaurants are gonna need to have to be able to, to survive, even putting in place the restrictions. And again, we understand why it is that they're doing this. And uh, you know, I've gone to get pickup and carry out and stuff. And you, you now see, I don't know if you guys have seen this, they have, here are the sanitized pens for when you sign the receipt. Here are the ones that are dirty, throw the, I mean, this is, this is like just total different change for us. Um, but all those things, we're now seeing that, you know, tables are now, you can't even hear the person next to you because they're so far away from you. The table has been moved so far away. They're talking in Lee County about having tables set outside so people could just be able to eat and use a restaurant. Those types of changes for restaurants are going to have a huge effect on restaurants. They are so, already working on the margin. So this is just going to make it that much more difficult. But um, th there is obviously a need for what we need to do on the um, state and local, uh, state and federal level. So Amanda, you, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, being able to understand that what the job is like. And again, you only have two years before it's time to run again and, and start the campaign over again. Um, Obviously, business owners and, and you know citizens need need help now, right? Because they're in the middle of the COVID, thirty million unemployed, all of those types of uh, numbers that we're seeing. What are some of the initiatives that you have uh, going into your first term, if you were to win, that you would uh, really start to, uh, you know, that you would consider your your goal um, initiatives during those first two years to try and help people? 
Sure. Well, I think it's premature right now to talk about where we're going to be January of 2021. Um, so I wouldn't want to speculate that far ahead. I mean, everything is changing, um, you know, almost daily, weekly. Uh, you know, the president has said uh, payroll tax holiday. You know, I think those types of things that give an immediate cash infusion uh, to a business are really important. And I've talked to some restaurant owners about that, and they said that would actually be ideal. Uh, with the PPP, obviously, you have to go apply. There's a process. We saw what happened. They ran out of money after two weeks, $349 billion. They ran out after two weeks. And so, you know, and all the, the hurt that restaurants had to endure and even just small businesses where they said, well, we're just in the queue. We don't know how long this is going to take. And of course, Congress came in and, you know, replenished the funds. And that's, that's important to do. But something that is an immediate infusion that restaurant owners have talked with me about is the uh, payroll tax holiday. And that's what the president is pushing right now. And I think that's something that's sensible and logical and doesn't require applications and it doesn't require going to the bank and it doesn't require Congress having to come back and say, okay, we got to do another bill to, um, you know, make sure that there's enough funding there. They, they, can, they can just make that, a, make that legislatively done without having to continue to uh, bring in more legislation to do it like they did under PPP. And so I think that um, instinctively I would say that. But again, I think we have to wait and see what happens, um, you know, January of next year and where we are. I mean, they're still talking about maybe there's going to be another, um, you know, another bout with this in the fall. And so I think really knowing where we are in January from where we were in March um, it would really vary as to what we need to do and what we need to focus on. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, I've lived now in the Tampa Bay area uh, for about 14 years, and I've actually had quite a bit of interaction with uh, Congressman Christ, uh, both uh, not only being involved politically with the young Republicans, but uh, during my time in the senator's office. Uh, you're talking about one of the most prolific uh, strongest politicians, okay, like, uh, you know, because, again, he's been able to switch parties, uh, he's been uh, three times, uh, he's, you know, and he's someone who was born and raised in the community. Um, what's the message that you're using to reach across the aisle to Democrats to say that, hey, look, Charlie Chris isn't working for you guys, because, you know, District 13 is one of the few purple districts we do have in the country. Sure. Um, you know, all your points are well taken and, and they're correct. I mean, yeah, he's been able to switch parties and, you know, win sometimes, lose sometimes. Um, I think that there's just a lack of candor and being genuine. And I think right now, more than ever, people are tired of career politicians. They're tired of people who will say and do anything to stay in office. People are going through some very challenging times right now, and they want to know that there's someone that can help them, someone that's in their corner, someone that can be their voice. I don't believe that Charlie Crist is the voice of this district. Um, you know, if you're a Democrat, if you're an independent, if you're a Republican, um, you were on different sides of where impeachment was. Charlie Crist was the first person out of the gate to talk about impeachment, saying we need to go through an impeachment process. And, you know, I think it's things like that, uh, now that he's part of Nancy Pelosi's leadership team is it, uh, on the DCCC side, on the political arm, he's part of leadership. So he has to push that message. And I get that. This is not a district that rewards people who are 
career politicians that are willing to go swing so far to uh, to to be Nancy Pelosi, to be everything for Nancy Pelosi, and I think that's what he's kind of morphed himself into. And that's kind of um, crazy, right? Because I mean, you're talking about a Republican governor of Florida, and now they've transformed themselves into one of the head Democrats in the in the country. I mean, isn't that? I mean, that that tells you a lot, right? It says a lot about him. And I think that you know, when I talk to people, and I'll just approach people. Um, you know, and I'll say I'm running against Charlie Chris, and I have no idea what their political affiliation is. And they'll say, the guy who is in three different parties, again, I have no idea what their affiliation is. And they're not being flipped by saying that. They truly are like, that guy, that's the first thing that comes to their minds. Um, and, and when I say, yeah, they're like, well, which party is in now? And I'm like, well, he's a Democrat now, but who knows tomorrow? And so, you know, it's just that it's creating that narrative that he's allowed himself uh, to be created about him, that he doesn't do anything to help people, and he doesn't have a core as to who he really is. To your point, Jake, if you can go from being the Republican governor who was once waiting in the wings to be the vice presidential uh, candidate. Uh, on the GOP side, and then you go to now being part of the DCCC's political leadership team, literally the people who are in charge of getting AOC, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar elected, uh, that just shows you don't have a core. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Very so, unprincipled. Yeah, Amanda, I, I, is there, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to go over as far as your campaign or any of the, um, you know, anything you wanted to bring up. Uh, other than that, I will, you know, kind of move us into talking about um, a little bit about Florida, um, you know. Yeah, well, let me, let me just say, I mean, I, you know, with regards to, to being, you know, a candidate in this district, I think it's really important that, um, you know, people know how much, uh, you know, the, the work that you put in and the work largely revolves around fundraising. You know, this is not about, you know, stardom. It's not about, you know, getting your name out there to be the, uh, to be, you know, famous. You're out there and trying to solve people's problems. When I talk to people, all I say to them is, hey, I'm just checking in, especially during COVID, I'm checking in, want to see if I can be helpful, because that's what your job is, uh, to, be, to be helpful. And I would just say that, you know, the work that we've done to, you know, try and help people, to, you know, raise the money to really have the, the fighting power to go against someone, as we've talked about, someone like Charlie Crist, um, I, I think what we've been able to do is put this race on the map. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, has endorsed me. Steve Scalise, the Republican whip, has endorsed me. Um, Elise Stefanik, who's in charge of getting House uh, Republican women elected and finding the best candidates with the most viability, has endorsed me. And I think all those things just sh really shine a spotlight on this district being as important as it is for the presidency, uh, but also how important it is to have someone who really can represent this district and flip this district back to Republican control. This district was in Republican control for over 40 years. Charlie Chris has been in the role for three years now, and we can flip this seat back. And what I've been able to do is really put this on the map so that we have the endorsements. We have the NRCC. I'm at the highest level of NRCC young gun status, one of only 27 candidates in the country. Um, and, and I think that that has just, again, put this race really on the map. Awesome. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you going into, um, you know, some of your campaign and, and uh, you know, all the endorsements are great. Um, so I, I will now kind of, you know, continue on the show like we usually do. And I'm happy to, you know, have you chime in on any of your opinions on, on what we're going to go over now. And I think, Johnny, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, you know, our topic here 
of, you know, Florida reopening, right? Cause that's kind of the big news this week. And, you know, there's, we have a, um, you know, governor who, who just sat down and did a press conference from a hair salon and told everybody that they're going to, you know, be able to get back into, uh, into the swing of things and, you know, beaches are reopening all of that. Um, I'm happy to get everybody's opinion on what, like, you know, we've, we here at, at this show have been calling for this, uh, basically since the beginning, right? Like we've been talking about not shutting down for about two months now, um, you know, and doing it responsibly, but, you know, at the same time, like very against a lot of the measures that have been put in place. So I'm curious to get everybody's reaction to what, what's taken place the last couple of weeks and, you know, now where we stand today on reopening. Well, I would say, you know, I was hoping maybe for a little bit more than what he gave us, right? Because basically, you know, he's allowed the restaurants to open at 25% capacity. The theme parks, obviously, they're going to, uh, they've been given the green light to go ahead and, and open uh, at a fraction of their capacity. But again, uh, you know, we've seen the best practices in, in place with the businesses that were allowed to stay open. Uh, we're seeing the that uh, restaurants have obviously done an amazing job of limiting the contact that they have with their customers. And there's no reason why I would say the majority of businesses throughout Florida can't adopt those best practices, can't adopt those CDC guidelines and reopen sooner rather than later. Now, I know you don't want a free for all, but certainly for phase one, I felt it was a little bit gun shy. I think he could have done a little bit more to, again, kind of kickstart the economy uh, back up, at least here in Florida. I don't think so. At the end of the day, a lot of the businesses that you were not mentioning in the, in the comments you just said cannot follow CDC guidance when it comes to the six feet apart. So um, barbershops, salons, even gyms, it's very difficult for them to be able to open up. And we don't have many examples around the country of how to open those places up. So I think giving it a week or two to allow them to figure out what's going on and then reopen was something I think was necessary to ensure the safety of everyone. I mean, I went to American Social in, in Tampa, Florida, this weekend just to pick up a pizza and, and be able to support local businesses. And I was completely shocked of the bar area that they were completely open and there were no chairs. So they were doing what they needed to do, but there's no tape on the floor. There's no order of lines. They're just giving drinks. They're, they're selling drinks and everything. So people can walk to the, to the water. Way to put them on blast and evil. I'm, I'm going to, because I was, I was a little, I was a little offended almost. To be like, I don't want them fined. We are doing by our, our city council, whatever. But that's not the point. The point is this: the goal is to open up safely, and the more that we do that, and there isn't going to be a second wind. Mm -hmm. It's going to push these people that would love to re close the city again just because there's a spike. The goal is now for all responsible individual citizens to take that responsibility and judge the risks that they're taking and make sure they don't put others in danger. Well, that's a good toss-up uh, to our. Uh, to our two panelists for today, anyways, uh, from Pinellas County. So, you know, uh, I'll say, you know, Amanda, if you want to take a shot at it first, and then Chris, uh, how do you all feel about, you know, reopening the beaches in Pinellas? I thought that was pretty progressive for them, uh, given how uh, liberal Pinellas County is, uh, you know, at the local level. Um, you know, they, they seem very eager to get the, business, the beaches back open. I, I will say this, if you can go to Publix, uh, if you can go to Walmart, you can certainly go to our beaches. I, I think that um, there is nothing wrong with people social distancing at the beaches. Um, I, have, I have a hard time with knowing what the media actually is representing when they show us these pictures and video footage because I think that they do a sloppy job of really 
accurately portraying <laughs> the photos of what's actually happening at our beaches. Um, but, you know, I think, um, look, again, this district is largely service industry oriented, tourism industry oriented. Um, it's a $40 billion industry tourism is for the state of Florida. And um, to think that we decimated, we flattened like a pancake, that economy um, during, during our peak time. Um, it is it is very it is hurting our businesses, and I think that by reopening up the beaches, you can't open up businesses and say no no no, but you can't go to the beaches. It, to me, the beaches are what drive people to use those businesses to um, patronize those businesses, and so I think um, it was a good idea to open up our beaches, and I think it will start the process. This is not like we can light a fire under our economy and it's going to start back up the way it was mid-February. That's just not the reality. And so we've got to do this in a, in a methodical way. And I don't know if you saw today, there was um, Steve Contorno did a, had an article in uh, the Tampa Bay Times, and he was talking, he talked to, uh, I think, I believe there were seven public health experts. Six of the seven basically said, what he's doing is, what Governor DeSantis is doing is, is the right approach. You know, I mean, he's basically being methodical about it. And so, you know, it's like Goldilocks, like you're never going to get it right. Someone's going to always say that's not enough. Someone's going to say that's too little. But I think doing it in a way that doesn't raise the ire of the president the way that Governor Kemp did in Georgia, and, I, and, and to your point, David, we'll know in a, in, a, in a week or so what the results of Georgia are since they opened. But I think, you know, taking a methodical approach the way that the governor did, um, you know, could he have done more? You know, anyone can say they, he could have done more. He should have done less. I think for those people who think, you know, this is, it's still too early, that's okay. You don't have to partake. Um, and for those okay. people who, you know, think that, um, you know, we, we need to do more, I think, uh, you know, the, to, to, your, to one of the people's earlier point, I can't remember who said this, but he was at a salon on Saturday in Orlando. And so I think that's something that as a woman <laughs> with nails with hair, uh, I would just say that's something that uh, is important. We want to be able to go to, uh, to the hair salon. I think Amanda, it's not just you. Talk. It's not just you. My hair has been going. It's, it's been months crazy. now at this point. It's been months now at this point and I'm ready. It's definitely I'm ready for, not just you. <laughs> I'm ready for gyms to reopen. That's my biggest thing right now. I, I people not being able to get into gyms. It's been like months of being stuck at home. Um, you know, personally, I think that, you know, they, I don't know if we ever should have closed beaches. I don't think that's necessary. I know what it looked like from off from an optic standpoint when you had spring breakers there uh, a couple months ago. But, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, this is a virus and we have to look at this kind of objectively and being out at a beach by yourself isn't necessarily going to spread a virus. But again, let's bring it all back to where we are today. It's, I'm not going to complain too much about what's happened over the past few months, but, you know, looking forward. Um, I think like you guys are saying, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in uh, Georgia reopening because versus other states that have, you know, been a little slower to, to come around to opening up because, you know, as they, as all the numbers come in, um, there's been a real lack, I feel like from the media side to go back and analyze how are things going in Sweden where they never closed down, right? Where their numbers are not much different than anywhere else in the, in the world, right? They're lo not looking at Italy. Like why, why was Italy such an outlier? Because even after, we had this all these peak weeks of of uh, you know supposedly the hospitals are supposed to be filled and we're supposed to have all of these like terrible emergencies happening. Uh, none of that stuff was happening. But why why was it happening in Italy? Like why was that like that was where we used as an example? Uh, we need to go back and kind of like evaluate the entire uh, the entirety of what we did and how the media reacted and then how you know everybody reacted. Policy was generated based off those reactions because Amanda, one of the things that I would say 
um, to you as a leader that I've, that I noticed from especially local leaders more than more so than state and national, but even at the state and national level very much is that they're all very reactionary in their decision-making, right? There wasn't very many people who came out um, with, you know, a, a strong conviction on how something should or shouldn't be done and then took action on it that way. Uh, instead, it was all just very like, oh, look at what happened right now. It's all crazy. Now we're going to shut everything down and then just like hammer, blanket, shut down on the whole, the whole city or the whole county, right? So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about if there's you know, something like this, right? If there's a more emergencies, if, if in nine months or 12 months, like if you're in, elected into office, how would you approach something like this, right? Where there's an emergency situation, um, you know, people's panic is, is at an all-time high. Uh, but, you know, I kind of expect our leaders to to take a level head and, and look at it kind of objectively. Sure. I mean, well, this is this is such an outlier of an issue. I mean, you know, we've had other, you know, outbreaks and you don't remember it ever being at this level. But this was really something that it was so um, it was so unprecedented. It was so novel. And if you look back and to your point about Italy. Italy is, um, I believe, the oldest country in the, in, in the world, oldest as far as elderly population. So you had a lot of deaths resulting in Italy because there are so many elderly people. Um, and so when you, when you think about it from that perspective, or you look at other countries, you know, I was reading through the list of all the um, healthcare workers that had passed away from COVID, and the list was extremely long in the countries where this was first detected. Um, and so when you look at those countries and you look at all those deaths, you see we learned from what they were doing. The viruses in a certain part of the body. You had all these dentists that died, ear, nose, and throat physicians that died, allergists that died, people who worked in that part of the body and didn't know. We knew so little about this. And so I think truly to be fair, we have to say this was so unprecedented for leaders, for healthcare workers, for everyone. I mean, we had no idea. And, you know, everyone was saying, this is going to get worse. This is going to get worse. And you had Fauci and Burks and all these other people. It, it's hard to know. It really is. And, and we have to be fair about that. We can sit in Monday morning quarterback. I don't think that's fair to do. But what I will say is this, when you're looking at shutting things down, I think you should just think objectively and really come at it from a business point of view. How is this going to impact our economy? And, and like I said earlier, you know, the death of an economy is just as important as, you know, any other death that you can look at. I mean, we are we have devastated an economy and we understand, we look back and we say, okay, you know, this happened for the reasons that it happened. But this is going to be very hard to come back from, and many businesses won't make it. So I think being objective, leaders should think about this from the standpoint of business as well. Um, but that's why it's hard to be in a leadership role. That's why it's hard to be, uh, you know, have these positions because you have a balancing test that you have to sure. do. And so it's, it's never going to be a perfect science. It's not like math. Um, and so I think knowing what, um, knowing what we've experienced now, I think it's always important. Just keep it from a business perspective too, to remind a good reminder of that. Um, you know, I mean, businesses still, still were able to thrive. I mean, look at Publix. They did a, they've done a billion dollars since the coronavirus. Um, and, and that's, and that's great. But you know, that shows you people still went to shops. People still went to the grocery store. 
Yeah, it's, it is uh, one of those things that there's definitely some winners and losers that have come out of this. Um, you know, I, I come from a digital background, so I think that everybody that's in, in my space has done just fine. Um, you know, you look at the, the reporting of Amazon or one of those kind of companies right. that have just absolutely skyrocketed. Right. It's not really, uh, re- not really affected them very much. If anything, it's been positive, right? Well, sure. We're on Zoom right now. Zoom is just uh, blown up. Right. So, uh, but there are, again, there's 30 million unemployed. And so we need to do something about that because I assume that some of the worst, uh, of the effects of this, the last two months are still to be seen, uh, whether it be maybe in the, in the housing market, which I think could be, you know, be the next domino to fall in a few months, or it could be, uh, it could be in healthcare as well. Um, you know, some of these other industries that haven't necessarily seen the full effects of where we're at right now. Sure. I mean, just look, to your point about healthcare, I mean, no one would think in a healthcare crisis, healthcare workers would be losing their jobs. Well, um, you know, healthcare professionals have offices, they have mortgages, they have equipment that's very expensive and costly. Um, the dentists have been allowed to, you know, now go back, I think, as of today. But for over a month, you know, dentist's office were shut down. Again, you know, physician's offices were shut down. And so when you think about it from that perspective, there are many who won't be able to make those notes, pay those notes because they have employees they have to pay or, you know, whatever their, um, you know, universe of uh, mortgage payments are. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. To your point, we still don't know what the fallout will be. Um, and hopefully there will be good leadership in the next few months that'll, that'll uh, you know, address those things. But going forward to next January, you know, I hope that I'll be in a position to really be able to assess the situation um, and, and look at all the things that need to, be, need to be addressed. And I hope to be able to do that. But that's what people, I think, in leadership roles really need to focus on is just as important as it is the public health issue. We also have an economy that we just can't decimate. And I'm hoping that you won't be uh, going for any sort of universal healthcare system. I know that with you and your healthcare background, after this whole uh, after this whole experience, I think that's you know kind of the calling card on the left is going to be over the next year or so. Is you know you know people like Charlie Chris that are top of the of the left uh, leadership that are going to be going for something like you know universal healthcare. I mean, again, no I, I don't expect that to be your no uh, your platform, and, but and, and and if anything was shown. Um, you know, look how much we're reliant uh, every day. Who's going to have the blockbuster drug that saves us? Who's going to have the, uh, you know, the shot that we can take that'll, you know, that'll keep us from getting uh, coronavirus? And so Gilead right now is the company that everyone's talking about. And, you know, maybe they're on the brink of something and, you know, the FDA emergency authorization that they receive. The, the importance of allowing for um, you know, drug companies to create these drugs is really important. And if we want to take a step back and we want to go to say universal healthcare, we want to make this all government run. I think that is the worst thing that we can do. And if anything, this pandemic showed why you don't want the government to be running things and the, the government to be creating things. The government can't create a drug as, as evidenced by what's happened. They can't create a drug to help you with your coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. That's- or even a testing device for that matter. Uh, again, thank you so much for watching The Yard Sign, the most important and relevant podcast in politics with special guest Amanda Mackey, candidate for Congress in Florida's 13th District. Uh, and of course, uh, as always, Anibal Cabrera, Christopher Kylan, and Jay Kaufman. Uh, we appreciate you so much for watching. Uh, please make sure that you are sharing, commenting uh, with people. And don't forget to subscribe to the audio version of our podcast on Google, Spotify, 
and Apple Podcast platforms. Uh, our final topic for the day, Joe Biden's Me Too movement, or moment, sorry. <laughs> he is, of course, in hot water after uh, allegations have come out from uh, Tara Reid. And I think everybody remembers the name so much because of the actress, but of course, a very different Tara Reid. And, and she said uh, that. She said, don't confuse me. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, but it's one of these things that it's been interesting to watch them navigate this. Uh, of course, I think Bi Biden's nomination was in trouble even before this, uh, because again, there have been questions about his mental health and, and, and just some of the odd behaviors that we're seeing, not too dissimilar, like we saw from Hillary Clinton. Uh, again, Amanda, as you know, uh, a campaign is incredibly stressful. It's physically taxing. Um, and, and to put this on top of Joe Biden, uh, do you feel that we might see a different nominee from the Democratic Party come November? Well, I'm not sure they're there just yet. Um, look, I think what what really happens is, you know, that we are so polarized right now, right? There's going to be the faction that no matter what happens, they're voting for Trump. And no matter what happens, they're voting for, you know, Joe Biden. It's really that, you know, 10 and 11 percent in the middle that you're fighting for. And I think I see two things that are interesting. One is, you know, Joe Biden hasn't still convinced the Bernie supporters that he's the guy. And so those people sitting at home, that's dangerous for the Democrats. And so I think he has still that huge task ahead of him to convince the Bernie people that he can lead them. Um, you also have the issue of independent women. How are you going to get the independent women if you have this stinky thing out there, which is what happened, a very vile action allegation that's been made about what happened in the halls of Congress. My God, I worked in those halls. I mean, that is just a bad image to think of. Um, and, and you have to convince those independent women. Um, the other thing I will say is that, you know, there's, there's, it's important that, you know, this candidate have the ability to truly be able to do everything that he needs to do to you know, go after the president. He doesn't have that opportunity right now because he's locked up in a basement in Delaware somewhere and no one, you know, really sees or hears from him except that uh, interview that he did on Friday saying, no, no, I don't know anything about this. What I think is most vile about this whole entire thing is what a, um, really what they did with Brett Kavanaugh and what yep. they did with Joe Biden. I mean, listening to Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, the governor of Michigan, say, I stand with Joe. I stand with Joe. It, it doesn't matter. I, I, I believe him. What about we have to listen to the women? We have to hear the women. We have to believe the women. Whatever happened to that? As that aside, how about uh, Laura Bloom, who says, yeah, yeah, whatever your situation is, Tara Reid, sorry, I'm still with Joe. I mean, it is such a double standard. And if, if you are an independent, you should be looking at this and thinking this is the most vile behavior you've seen, or they will give him a free pass. Arguably, she has a way stronger case, I will say, uh, way stronger case Tara Reid has and more corroborating evidence than Blasey Ford did. Yet they said, no, 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 believe Blasey Ford. And Alyssa Milano was in the, in the crowd. She had to be there in, in support. Where is she now? And this is showing the hypocrisy of this entire movement from Stacey Abram and her position that she's going for. And then having no one knows where Elizabeth Warren is right now. 
because she is refusing to do any media work because she does not want to answer questions on this matter. It has become a farce to see how bad the liberal media is pushing this and punting this. Because they, her interview originally happened 30 days ago um, when it was published first out. And if they would have gone the moment that happened and made this into an issue, I don't think you would be having such the implosion that occurred over the weekend after the horrible Mika uh, interview on, I don't remember the show. Morning Joe with Mika Brzezinski. Yeah. And so now it's becoming a real issue that you have the New York Times and everyone else having to jump in and have egg on their face. And it just shows the hypocrisy. And I agree with you. The 10% of the country, 11% of the country that really thinks of themselves as independents, see this, remember this, and laugh when, when Joe Biden says, well, I was vetted, so I should be fine. Well, so was the Supreme Court nominee. And it it was vetted more than the others. So I don't know where people are going to land on this, but I think it's going to be negative for the vice president. So, so Anibal, like, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because obviously we're a Republican show. But the first thing that every Democrat's going to scream at us as we're talking through this is that Trump has a lot of similar allegations, right? They're going to say that, you know, he has all these women that came out during his uh, time, all the stuff with Stormy Daniels, everything like that. Um, So, I mean, you come to a couple conclusions, right? You know, you take all of these uh, very high-powered, individuals at the top of our government and you either say that they've they've all have legitimate uh sexual assault allegations that that are there that somehow they've kind of gone swept under the rug for all of the years or that there's you know something going on with the people who come forward right or that it you know it's done for political gain or whatever reason right? so it's like i don't know if they're all true they're all false there's something and throws a uh, a wrench at those 11 or 12 percent of people like you're saying that are somewhere in the middle that can't figure out where to fall on that Um, And I assume that, you know, Amanda, as a woman going for Congress, who's worked in Congress, uh, that it's probably frustrating to see and that maybe this is a a good call and a good reason why uh, women should be more, you know, we should have more women in Congress. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. I think, look, um, you know, there, yes, there have been allegations, but largely the, uh, you know, they've been debunked uh, on, on Trump's side. I mean, look, they'll never stop going after Trump. That's just sure. what they do. They, the media is obsessed with him and they, they can't stop. And so, you know, you have, I mean, Avenatti, where is Avenatti? Is he in prison now? I mean, you know, let's just table that. <laughs> um, you know, I think that uh, this comes down to really um, the way that, uh, Biden has handled himself in this whole, you know, situation is he's been, you know, hiding behind it. Didn't he say to Bloomberg on the debate stage, how about, you know, you can release your documents about, you know, what has happened with allegations similar, not too dissimilar from these. Um, Didn't he say that to him on the stage? Well, where is Biden now? Why isn't he trying to release those documents from the University of Delaware? They're sitting there. He could just as easily release them and he won't. And so I think that's just really important people who are objective, that 10 to 11% we're talking about of those women, women, here, here it is, you know, the Access Hollywood, you know, video that came out, that recording that came out, it came out and, and he apologized for it, done. Where's Biden? Biden won't even release anything. I mean, well, let's not forget, Amanda, you know, this was, you know, the, the same deal with President Obama. You know, we never got to see his college records. 
Uh, He refused to release those. And then when it comes to sexual allegations, I mean, again, the Democrats, you know, have been under the gun for this since the Clinton administration, and yet they still voted for Clinton time and time again. Uh, And and he is now basically, you know, the the kind of de facto icon of the Democratic Party, despite his well-known, well, uh, you know, uh, traced history, documented uh, history of all sorts of sexual allegations. Uh, You know, Monica Lewinsky maybe being the least of them. Uh, And and so, you know, they have no ground to stand on. And for them to continue to make this an issue uh, against the president, again, is just their their ultimate hypocrisy. And Johnny, I feel like, you know, the what it comes down to is when we start coming on this show, we start talking about issues and we start talking about policy and like hard fact and like what we need to do to turn the economy around, things like that we've had Democrats on this show to come talk about this, right? Like there's not a whole lot of depth there, right? So when it comes down to the election time, the only thing that they're, they have to stand on is things like racism, sexism, sexual allegations, things like that, because the policies don't make any sense, right? When they lost one of their crutches. <laughs> it, and and it, yeah, it does. It takes away one of their, the, you know, the bolts in the chamber that they always have. And it seems like sexual allegations is always one of the bolts in the chamber. And again, so either everybody has some sort of past of this at, at the top of the at top of Washington, or again, it's just kind of used as a talking point at some point in a, in a strategy. So I, I don't and know I, if there's... And I would just say, you know, back to your point about, you know, having more women in Congress. I mean, look, you know, women and men should all equally be, uh, you know, have disdain for this type of behavior. Um, and so a, a staffer, as a former staffer, I'll say a staffer should never feel threatened. I mean, she was literally told, don't dress this way. Don't have your hair this way. I mean, that's that's a hostile work environment that that's being created. And so I think, um, you know, whether you have women in Congress, I mean, I'm all for, uh, you know, women serving in Congress, and we certainly need to have more women uh, on the GOP side and, uh, you know, conservative, rational women. Um, I think that's important. But really, I mean, this comes down to it. Just don't be pigs. I mean, why should why should women be in a hostile work environment like that? And if Joe Biden created that environment for her, shame on him. Shame the, on him. And the problem that's going to happen is that Trump never really lied to us about his demeanor and how he acted with other individuals. Whereas Joe Biden has created this facade of pretending to be a wholesome individual and not having any, any skeletons in his closet. And there have been multiple people that have accused him of harassment or sexual harassment and allegations. And this is really bringing it up. I feel that this coming election cycle will probably be the, the, the year of the women. I mean, in the 90s, you had the soccer moms as a voting block. In the 2000s, you had security moms. And now you're probably going to have like a suburban Facebook empathy mom. I mean, it's, it's coming to that point. And the way the, Ob- the, the Biden campaign is running with the low enthusiasm, deficit of young, uh, young voters, and then like a, a sprinkle of Latin and, and black voters is going to be something very difficult for them to overcome. And we have to be vigilant as Republicans to make sure that we have the we have our armor and our policy in order so that we're able to put the best foot forward when, when the Trump requests for another four years. Right. Yeah. And somehow and somehow we're going to come back on this show every week like we have for the past year and say Trump still has a clear path to victory. Um, I don't see him losing right now still, even despite all of the COVID stuff, despite all of the economy shutting down 30 million people. I that Joe Biden is such a weak candidate that I think that he's he's still going to win. Well, to what you're saying, Jake, uh, he's been on the uh, the side of wanting to have a reasonable discussion about balancing, uh, you know, saving lives and keeping the economy open. 
but to uh, the topic we were talking about, I think it's really sad to have this happen again. These, uh, these allegations being dismissed by Joe Biden, like a lot of good positive changes come out of the Me Too movement, but really this is exposing it for what it is. And it's been a political club from the start. And it's really unfortunate something so positive could have that negative backdrop and that negative origin. Um, it's, it's really sad. Uh, but I, I think to what Amanda was saying regarding the, the independents who are evaluating facts, and this kind of goes back to your devil's advocate statement, Jake, uh, people who can evaluate these allegations will see that a lot of the allegations against conservatives, not all, but a lot of them have been unfounded and politically motivated, but we can see that there's a little more substance to the ones on the democratic side, as far as I've seen so far. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think, I, I think you're right so far. I mean, again, it, it's, you know, when you go back to the Me Too movement and the origins of it, I mean, again, it comes from a very real uh, place with lots of women who have very real stories that need to be taken seriously. And um, you know, but the, the general overview right now that we're seeing is that there's been this believe all women movement, which is just uh, a step too far. Right. And it's really Absolutely. ruined what, what turned out, like you guys said, it has started as such a positive and has turned into uh, such a blanket that doesn't, doesn't work. You can't just make blanket policies and blanket statements like that. When again, at the end of the day, you need to take it objectively and look at it case by case. So I think that's really all I, I have to say about it. Johnny, I don't know if you have anything else. And if not, we can kind of, wrap it up. No, and look, give. Uh, again, I think this is, you know, uh, again, one more strike against the Biden campaign. Uh, I don't know, obviously, uh, because I think this would be an unprecedented opportunity for Democrats if they were to try to unseat him as the nominee. It would obviously look horrible on them. I think it would be strategically impossible for them to win putting somebody in uh, at this late in the, in, in the game. Uh, and, but obviously, they they this is the hand that they've been dealt, you know, and this is <laughs> the candidate of their choice. Uh, uh, and honestly, not that I'd be any happier or more excited with any of the others, uh, but uh, this is uh, something that has come, uh, again, to roost for them because they've been so hypocritical on so many issues for so long. Uh, and so, again, I think uh, the president uh, has uh, actually, if anything, I think he's been seen as a stronger leader uh, during this coronavirus crisis. Uh, and uh, so far, I think the reason that the media hasn't really talked about it is because the, the numbers have been stable, steady, uh, if not stronger in his favor. Uh, and so, again, uh, leading up to November, I think that's all going to play into the into the president's uh, favor. And, and honestly, I think given... Uh, the state of the country before the coronavirus and now even during the coronavirus, uh, I think he deserves it. I, I, you know, and obviously no presidency's perfect, uh, but certainly I think given the options and given the rhetoric and the policies that have been adopted uh, by the far left socialists within the Democratic Party, I think now is not the time to uh, change horses midstream. Yes, Nate. I have, to, I have to agree with that. Seeing how well Ron DeSantis used the media's um, propaganda when he did his announcement last week of how to reopen the country, the same way that the president is using the media's own words. Heck, the media said it was going to be 2 million people dead if we didn't do anything. And so he did something, and now we're under 100,000. He's going to use the same thing when it comes to the Joe Biden. Joe Biden in December said that China was our friend and was not our enemy. And then look what happened. The hypocrisy of the Democratic Party and the policies that they've that they've brought in are not working. And again, they are coming to roost. And to see what's going to happen and see the cracks in the wind in the facade now, this early before the election, before the primaries in the many other states have even started yet, 
is really troublesome to see what the Democrats are going to do. They either bite the bullet and, and go all the way, or they're going to see it just, they're gonna, it's going to be a blowout in November. All right. Well, thank you again, everybody, for watching The Yard Sign. Uh, we appreciate you. Again, don't forget to share uh, this episode and subscribe to all of our uh, social media accounts, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, even Instagram. Uh, you know, we are going to be sharing more clips from the show and there as well. And then the audio version of our podcast on Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcast platforms. Amanda, uh, thank you again for joining us on today's show. We really appreciated your insight and, you know, we wish you the best. We're so fortunate to have, uh, you know, strong candidates in, in that district that I absolutely think belongs uh, back in Republican hands. What can people do to support your campaign, to learn more about you and, and follow your progress as we get closer to November? Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'll just say we are we are so lucky to have uh, President Trump in charge right now. I can't even imagine what this would have been like under a Hillary Clinton administration. Um, I think she would have just said, hey, guys, let's just hang it up for a year. You don't need to come back. We're just not going to work for another year. I mean, that's truly what I believe would have happened. So we should count our blessings every day that we have a president like President Trump who really um, has put this on the forefront, has been, you know, out there every night, you know, giving uh, in a transparent way his, um, you know, his answers and rebuttals to, to the press. Um, I think we're all lucky being from the Tampa Bay area that Kaylee McEnany is from here and now in charge of uh, the press room. And so, um, you know, we're just, we're just very fortunate in that sense. Um, thank you again for the opportunity. If you'd like to support me, you can go to my website, Amanda Mackey, M-A-K-K-I.com and sign up to, to help out, volunteer. Uh, it's gonna take it's gonna take an army to do this. And uh, we, we fully recognize what, what we're trying to do, but we also know that it is not insurmountable. Charlie can be beat. Having President Trump at the top of the ticket will definitely help us. And so, um, you know, if you can go on our website to sign up, to donate, that's the most important thing right now that you can do is by contributing, you can really make a difference for our campaign. Well, and I think you made a great point there, which is with the president at the top of the ticket right now is one of the best chances we might have to defeating Charlie Chris in that very, very purple district. And so uh, we appreciate, you know, again, all your efforts to uh, get on the ballot. And uh, and again, we, we look forward to uh, helping out in any way we can down the stretch. Uh, Chris, closing thoughts. Uh, so one thing I wanted to get in during the uh, the opening up thing was something that I, a message I delivered to the uh, Hillsborough County Commission, the emergency policy group this this past week, and I think it's an important thing to consider for everyone going forward. And uh, our, our our initial goal uh, when combating coronavirus was to keep our hospital system from being system from being overwhelmed, and we've gone so far beyond that. We've gone to the point we've gone to trying to keep infections as low as possible. Um, things that are unattainable. And I think that any measure that goes beyond the goal of trying to keep our hospitals from being overwhelmed is a waste of potential, potential productivity for our citizens and, and an encroachment of freedom on our citizens as well. So I think that's really important for nationwide, all of our leaders to consider that going forward for potential future ways and just kind of take this into a balance act, like Amanda said, and balance productivity and life with being safe. So that's all I have for today. Thank you all for watching. Well, and what's crazy is we're seeing businesses actually enact stricter policies, you know, mandating masks and that sort of thing um, at a time where at least here in Florida, 
we seem to be headed in the right direction. Obviously, in other parts of the country, coronavirus is still a major issue, and and that makes sense. But I, you know, again, at least here locally, uh, I think we're we're on the right path to opening up and uh, uh, just in time for summer. So hopefully, we can take advantage of uh, our amazing tourism industry. Jake, closing thoughts. Yeah, I just want to thank Amanda Mackey again for for joining us. Uh, and then I think that this also serves as a reminder to everybody who watches the show, anybody who's involved with politics or wants to get involved or, you know, like I know that my inbox has been full since the beginning of this because people are outraged at how their governments responded. Um, stay involved with politics. Start working in your local politics, your local political campaign, and to start getting good people into office so that these type of problems don't don't arise as, as often, right? So I know that there's going to be a lot of ground to make up, especially for somebody who's not an incumbent. So and then the primary coming up in August, it's, it's just right around the corner for all of these candidates. And it's extremely important, you know, while everything still stopped, the elections didn't stop. So, so get involved, stay involved, donate to the campaigns. Um, and support all of the Republican candidates that that come across that are you know supportive of the platforms that we support. Well, and on that note, uh, a special thanks to the Tampa Bay Young Republicans. Thank you, Jake, for lining up the interview with uh, Amanda today. Uh, and uh, again, if you are under the age of 41, look up your local Young Republican chapter. If you're over the age of 41, like I'll be very soon, uh, look up your Republican chapter, you know, and absolutely get involved with any and every campaign you can, because we need every bit of help that we can to make sure that we have uh, another big red victory come November. Uh, on behalf of Anibal Cabrera, Christopher Collin, Jake Hoffman, and our guest, Amanda Mackey, this has been The Yard Sign, the most important irrelevant podcast in politics. We will see you next Monday, 7 o'clock. Thank you so much for watching. Say bye, everybody. See ya. Bye-bye.